0: parish priest who was a wonderful bloke came to the class and you know like big people ask little people what they're going to be when they grow up he was asking us what we're going to be and uh, most of us were going to be farmers or truck drivers or train drivers because we had steam trains and stuff there it was pretty exciting and he came to me and i said i was going to be a boy sister
1: This podcast is really an excuse for me to make space for and invite really great people to have conversations that help me to better navigate the world. I didn't want to simply share a statistic or ridicule a belief and create further division anymore. I wanted to open my heart and mind to the joy and love that exists in this world. Many people in this world and an amazing number of people around us are doing incredible things without any fanfare, fame or fortune. I was often caught up in looking at the problems of the world and being outraged by either the intentional exploitation of our natural and human environments or the inaction of the major players to provide solutions to existential threats such as climate change. I could talk about these things all day and I often did. But these conversations did not empower me. They did not support me. They did not inspire me. They did not support, inspire or empower anyone. Yes, they are important. But once you have understood the problem and grieved, it is time for change. Change for me begins with a perspective shift. To see the light instead of the shadow. To see the joy instead of the pain. To see the smile instead of the tears. And if you shift that perspective just a little, you will see that the world is full of as much joy as it is full of suffering. We need to understand that to remain focused on our goals. Goals that should include an attempt to end needless suffering around the world. But this will not occur by yelling or violence or force changes. It will be achieved through love. And for me, that means following in the footsteps of amazing people that exist on this planet that embody that mission. My next guest on Moments of Clarity is the definition of love. He has devoted himself to a life of action against needless suffering and I was thrilled to have had the chance to spend close to two hours picking his brain and his heart. Brother Harry Proud is a Marist brother and has lived for 21 years amongst some of the most disadvantaged people in Victoria. He is based in the old Olympic village in West Heidelberg, Melbourne. During the first half of the podcast, we discuss his work in the area as part of the Exodus community. I'll provide a link as to how you can be involved in this worthy charity in the show notes. The second half of the podcast delves into Harry's life, personality, wisdom and lessons that I definitely do not take for granted. I learnt a lot from this conversation and was truly inspired and rejuvenated afterwards. I hope you gain as much as I did from our discussion. So without further delay, I bring you Harry. Harry, hello. (laughs) Welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you. I just wanted to, I guess, touch on the reason I'm doing this podcast and give you a little bit of context so I really believe that the current state of society in the world is basically on a knife edge of whether we start to renew society community and social structures in a really positive way or whether we start leading down a path of I guess a pessimistic path that I don't like to think about but with things like our climate crisis yep. and, and overpopulation and urban sprawls and with information overload basically mm. of people getting information from all sorts of media and and people are scared and fearful and, and are worried about things. I, I'm trying to create a podcast that talks to everyday people that are doing good things right. and yeah. that are living by a value set that they – Are comfortable with and can go home happy after a day's work Mm, mm. and that anyone can do this and really trying to inspire people that maybe say that I'd love to be in this job but I just can't get myself to do it or I'd Mm. love to start doing this on weekends Mm. but I just can't do it. How can I inspire people that were like me or still are like me at times that I'm really trying to pet myself up and pump myself up to do more and be better? How can I encourage more and more people to be like that? And I feel that my skill set, and I said this last week, is not necessarily to be an inventor or to be someone that can become Prime Minister or change the world single-handedly, but perhaps I can bring people along with me to unite, even with vast differences, Mm. unite and and make this world a better place. So that's where I come from. Yeah,
0: good, mate. Yeah, I mean there's plenty out there to be anxious and concerned about. uh, That's for sure. So to... uh to bring a, maybe a, just a positive spin on things or uh, give people an opportunity to look at uh, the value, valuable and worthwhile things. It's interesting that uh, you've turned up. I've just been reading um, the Book of Joy. I don't know if you heard it. Uh, it's a conversation between the Dalai Lama and um, oh, what's his name? The African uh, uh, bishop Desmond, uh, Tutu. Desmond Tutu. Tutu. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're talking about joy. And uh, they're saying that one of the fundamental reasons for a human being to be on the planet is to bring joy to people's lives. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly that's not what some of these other things yeah. bring. They just bring concern and anxiety and, and worry. So, uh, sure, we've got a there's there's that balance. Uh, there are things that are concerning. But to, to you know, if you've got that focus on what's going to bring joy – Sure, all the other things are, are there that are concerns, but uh, something something more positive and richer takes hold of it. So yeah, yeah
1: and and you find that it's much more inspiring than the, the joy. Than, oh yeah, 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 yeah.
0: yeah. Cool. Um, and even even in the, in the work I I do and the place I live, where there's a lot of hurt and brokenness and, and trauma, you can still see. I can still see the the positive side of things or the possibilities for people rather than the gloom and the doom and the and the horror and the pain and the disappointment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so where are you based, Harry? Yeah, so I live in uh, West Heidelberg in the uh, what was the old Olympic village, a uh, village that was built for the uh, uh, athletes of the Olympic Games in Melbourne, 1956. And then after the Games, the village was handed over for public housing, probably about 2,000 households. And still, what, 65-plus what plus years later, there are still at least a 1,000 households um, that are government-owned and uh, home to people who are on uh, Centrelink payments, welfare-dependent, mostly because of mental health issues, physical disabilities, age, um, unemployment for a whole lot of different reasons. Oftentimes we call it generational poverty, um, there's a, there's a cycle of uh, poverty that people get locked into and, and don't seem to be able to get out. Uh, so I'm in this uh, community, we call ourselves the Olympic Village Exodus community. It was begun about uh, 25 years ago by a group of people who came in from the outside deliberately wanting to create a intentional community somewhere on the east side of Australia. There already was one operating in Perth and the the person, the founder of that, Frank Smith, came here and gathered together a group of people to look at how can we live amongst people who are struggling and learn from them and develop with them uh, activities that are going to enrich and inspire and offer hope and, and build up. And uh, this place was chosen uh, and so it began and I was able to come into it two years uh, after it had begun. I've been in it for 21 years now. Live in one of the old Olympic Village houses. There was a Danish team living in this house where I live. And while I'm the only now full-time member of this particular community, the Exodus community, we have a management team of uh, seven people. Some are local and some are from outside areas um, that just oversee all the... Uh, the activities of the community and support the 50 volunteers who work with us in a whole range of different activities.
1: Wow, Mm. 50 volunteers.
0: Yeah. Did that take a while to build up or...? Um, It did, uh, but in the early days we were just going around the streets and knocking on doors and saying, hello, we are here, we want to be a part of this community, get to know each other and... uh, yeah, and, and work with a few of the other agencies and organisations that were were here, and then after a while, people said, "Oh, we want to be part of that." I guess the the notion of Exodus community comes from the old biblical story of the uh, refugees or the, the the prisoners, I suppose, in in Egypt, who wanted to escape that situation and then journeyed through the desert. Presumably for forty years, or the scripture tells us. if what what forty years meant in those days, yeah. we don't know. But uh, so journey with the people from slavery into another possibility. We'll probably never get to the end, but it's the journey on the way that counts with with the people. And so that's what who we are. We're a group of uh, people, local people and volunteers from neighbouring uh, suburbs and parishes who. Uh, want to try to help the local people who are sort of embroiled sometimes in powerlessness and disadvantage and and poverty and all its different forms and try to work with them to make their lives a bit richer. I guess in the early days I came thinking, well, what we're going to do is try to help these people who are in poverty move into sort of some kind of, you know, lower middle class lifestyle and then gradually (laughs) climb the ladder, as they say. And it didn't take me too long to realise that. (laughs) That was a pretty pointless exercise. My sense is a lot of people who are in this position of generational uh, poverty and powerlessness don't really aspire to middle class or, or anything else. What they aspire to is being treated with respect and decency in the position and place where they are. Mm. It's really difficult for them to break out of the uh, network of uh, welfare dependence. If they do, if they have an opportunity somehow to do it through education and possibility of employment, oftentimes what will happen is that that will be really temporary. They might get a job, for example, that isn't sustainable and the job runs out or they can't keep at it and then it takes them quite a period of time, sometimes six, eight weeks, to get back on a Centrelink payment and what do they live on in the meantime. Mm-hmm. So the Centrelink net of welfare support is is that. It, it does support them just, yep. only totally just. Yep. Uh, they, they can hardly live on it, but it is that security and, and safety for people
1: such an amazing journey and an insight into the mindset of people because I guess most people coming from the outside would think the idea is to rise or to build these people that are potentially welfare dependent into yeah the lower middle class. There's a lot of recent discussion about probably before the fires and, and a lot of things have changed since then but on changing our uh, the dole payments and welfare yes. payments – how hard is it for an individual or a family to live on the current welfare payments?
0: It depends a lot on their circumstances, but the short answer, very difficult. But if you're a, perhaps a, a single parent with a couple of kids, you've got a bit of a higher payment than if you're a a single person on your own and you're really struggling to, to find a job and you're on Newstart, for example, it's... Uh, it's it's the very barest minimum, and if you're having to pay rent, private rent, for example, it will be pretty much impossible for you. Uh, if you're living in a ministry house, uh, 25% of your Centrelink payment automatically is taken out for your accommodation, so that you're left with a certain amount of money to get by on. Then, if you're a uh, if you have a partner, there's a, like a mum and dad and a couple of kids, uh, their benefit is is a little bit higher. If you're a carer, there's just a little bit more to, to help you along. But as I said, basically, it's, it's pretty tough for people uh, to, to get by. And that's why we get a lot of calls from people for support with food particularly. Uh, just two days ago, a mum came by and just asked, did I have uh, any food for her daughter? Uh, who's just a young girl in uh, year eight at school and there's was, there was no food in the house. And the mum said, I can go without food, but I want something for my daughter, you know. Mm. And uh, a lot of times people will come looking for food vouchers just to get basic stuff like uh, bread and, and milk, um, cereal, just, just something. And it's not really healthy food that they're necessarily purchasing. Yeah. But, uh, and Or people will get a, an abominable electricity bill or one of the utilities and just, yep. just can't pay it, you know. And so they have to, again, go into some sort of debt, perhaps even go to Centrelink and get a loan yeah. to pay that. But then the paying back the loan means that they have a certain uh, deficit of income every fortnight, you know, and then how do they live on, you know, if that's the bare minimum, how do they live on less than the bare minimum? So it's it's pretty tough for people out there. So an organisation like ours who are able to get together with a whole lot of resources in the community, whether it's generosity of a bakery who wants to give us bread or whether it's uh, food from Second Bite or donations from schools or organisations, agencies giving us food or or vouchers or money that we can get vouchers for, we're able to work with the local people and offer them some sort of uh, economic relief. I think that's one of the big things. We just talking to a school recently who uh, were wanting to uh, set up a program and they wanting to know what to do. And I thought, well, one of the biggest needs is helping people alleviate this economic stress and perhaps if they were to purchase some toiletries and uh, soap powders and things like that, that means that when you're going shopping you don't have to purchase those sorts of things. Mm. So a little bit more money is available for food items and then we thought, well, is that what the need is? Whoever asked the people. Yeah. So we, instead we said, well, let's have a program where we go out and uh, meet with the local people in this area, speak with them about what might be some possibilities and together look at what are some of the needs and what might be some of the solutions to some of those needs. So all the way along in what we're doing, it's trying to collaborate with the local people not coming in and saying, oh, look, you poor people, you need this or you need that. Yep. Just how presumptuous is that of us to, to do that? So yeah. we've got to be really careful about trying to work with local people, find out what real needs are, and together try to, uh, to meet some of those needs. I often talk to – we have a – last year we would have had at least 200 students who came through here wanting to – secondary school students wanting to learn about – poverty and disadvantage and, and powerlessness by coming and just exploring the the area geographically and then meeting some of the people and hearing their stories and then listening to what we do and how we do it, the way we do it, why we do it. And I often say to them this is a thing from Bridges Out of Poverty. I don't know if you've come across no. that. Some people would have heard that's a it's a program and often say if People in generational poverty, for example, are, or well, we're all on an economic continuum, I suppose, yep. you know, from the really very poor to the really wealthy, and we sort of characterise it as the people in generational poverty playing a ga- game like snakes and ladders and people in middle class may be playing Scrabble mm. and the, the wealthier people playing a game like chess, for example. Yeah. It's not to say they're the only games they play, of course, but it's like that. Then say, if you're a middle-classy person and you're talking with someone in generational poverty, you said, would you like a game of Scrabble? And the person says, oh, oh yeah, i like a game of Scrabble. And so because you're hospitable, you sort of say to the person, well, you go first, and the person says, well, where's the dice? Oh no, we don't have a dice. Uh, oh, snakes and ladders—you just throw the dice and you've got a certain number and you go up a ladder or down a stake or whatever it is. Uh, oh no, here you have—you're uh, given these letters, and each letter is ascribed a, a certain value, and you've got to make these words on this board and you, you score certain points for doing that. Oh, oh, that's a bit hard. And then, uh, and then when you're doing that, you've also got to try and anticipate what the word the next person is going and you try to block them. Yeah. How different is that game from Snakes and Ladders? Mm. And I think that those metaphors hint for me, anyway, at the vast difference there is for people living in generational poverty to those who might be, you know, working class, middle class, and then sort of this extreme end. There are huge differences. Of course, there's differences in clothing, different in recreation, yeah. different in language, different in availability transport. sometimes say with food for example for folks in generational poverty it's kind of like the amount of food you can get that's really important and middle class it's probably looking at the quality of food and of course for the wealthy it's it's presentation You you get your little bit of steak with some drizzle on it and a little bit of potato and eat that and then you go home and get Maccas on the way yeah. home because you're hungry. So.
1: But you've had a, yeah. You've had the art of food. Rather yeah, yeah, than that's the, right. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah That yeah, abundance yeah. makes. Yeah, what yeah. can we do in terms of mm. the art form? Yeah. In terms of choices, I think that's a great way to to look at it. The idea of snakes and ladders. There isn't choice. Mm. It is luck. Mm. It is whatever you roll, and there, that's the path you're on. And if you're sliding down that snake. Well, it wasn't really up to you and if you're climbing true. up that ladder, it's yeah, luck yeah. as well. That's true. Man. And yeah, and that yeah. choice is, is yeah. removed. Yeah. And I know that a lot of studies have shown that well, and I guess anecdotal evidence shows that if you are pa- living paycheck to paycheck or wondering when your next job or next meal is going to come from, that you are actually going to make choices that are really short-sighted most of the time. And that is not your fault. It is your circumstance and you need to live like that because you don't have that guarantee, that safety net necessarily. Mm. Mm. And middle class people often put their own perspective. Well, if you saved this amount of money or you did this two years of training, you could get yourself a job, you could get yourself out of this, but two years or a year or six months of a a difficult course that isn't catering Mm. to Mm. any of the history and background that you've come from might be us doing a phd or, or that sort of level but we have the choice actually to just go and That's do a phd right. and yeah, fail yeah. and it's okay yep. because we've still got a job to fall back mm. on they in many cases and i'm talking about a, a really wide range of they but people living through generational poverty don't have any no, of those choices no. it's complete mm. pot luck. yeah you're so dead right it's, yeah. it's,
0: it's real lack of choice and uh the finance gives you some sort of choice. For example, uh, people of generational poverty or living in government house, you live in that particular house, in that particular street. Mm. Um, you haven't got any choice on where you live yeah. and who your neighbours are going to be or what suburb you're going to live. And, you know, the, the, those choices are all stripped away from you. You're right, yeah.
1: What do you think or what is the demographic of West Heidelberg in a way? what? How do most people end up here or is it, a long-term family structures that have lived here for generations or is it a lot of new arrivals too?
0: My sense is historically it was a place where a lot of people were moved to here because the housing that they were in, particularly in uh, inner city Melbourne, needed to be uh, demolished and so they were they were placed here after the game, some of them, and there were apparently there were quite a number of war widows as well. Since that time, my understanding is that it's, it's changed a, a bit. Uh, people have moved out and others have come in. Still, there's the typical old, um, what we call a you know, Anglo-Australian uh, background people who have been living in generational poverty. You know, their mums and dads were unemployed, they were unemployed or had underemployment anyway and, and struggled. And now particularly I think there are a lot of people in the area who struggle with uh, intellectual disabilities, mental health issues, physical disabilities. And so they're here not because of those conditions that they have but because of the availability of uh, relative or cheaper, cheaper housing. I think also when some of the um, institutions were closed down in the Kennet years, uh, a lot of people who were... Uh, in institutions particularly because of mental health issues um, came to live either on their own or together or with um, parents or siblings and uh, uh, quite a number of them I think moved into this this area too. Houses must have been made available to them. Then we have a group of people who are from refugee backgrounds. We have about 20% of our population, not just, not just in Limbic Village but in whole West Heidelberg, who are Somalis. And then we have uh, quite a number of people from other different cultural backgrounds and a group of Aboriginal people who are living in the area too. So it's very diverse, very mixed, but there's a great spirit of community, I find, in the area. Yeah. There's a changing demographic happening now and it's been happening for about five years, I suppose, where the um, state government have realised they have to do something about the state of some of their stock. Some of their housing was in pretty deplorable situation. And so they've had to either demolish and rebuild or refurbish some houses. What they've chosen to do in some cases is uh, sell off land. Some of these houses, smaller houses and two-storey places were built on pretty large properties. Yep. And so they could sell the land and a developer could buy it and they would build three houses mm. on that one property. And the government used the money that they got from the sale of that land to go and improve some of their own own stock. And what they've done even is they also have come in and built maybe three units where there was previously one house. So they're making sure that they maintain the, the same number of houses but not increasing the number but that's also meaning that there are more housing available for other people and probably more working class people are coming into the area. That change of demographic is obvious when you look around the place at the numbers of vehicles that are around the place and people walking around especially young families. I'm not too sure that there have been very many efforts made by institutions, organisations to help the integration of the, that particular population into the area. We're looking at that and trying... We, we, we would hate it that uh, people who are coming in new to the area feel a little bit isolated mm. or a bit lost or a bit um, unsure or even feeling unsafe because uh, typically the area has had a fairly uh, uh, negative kind of... Uh, what's, the, what's the word? Um,
1: would it be a stereotype? Stereotype, yeah. thanks. I know yeah.
0: that uh, about the place. Yeah. Know, people come in and I, I suspect some of them might be a bit concerned about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it would be interesting to know how, how they are feeling and, and how they are, uh, are getting on in the community.
1: I've got a uh, friend that's just moved in actually right. and would would have come like from the Altham area. And would be middle class, I guess. Yep. As a, So mm. to move into the area, so that would be someone to, yes, to yes, contact with yes, you and yeah, find yeah, out I'm a little yeah, bit, actually. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's uh, an ideal area for people to come and move into. We're close to hospitals, we're reasonably close to public transport, got access to good schools, uh, it's a, and, and not all that far from the CBD. So mm. it's a it's a wonderful area to be in, and good uh, sporting facilities and parks.
1: Yeah, and it's surrounded by really, really up-and-coming suburbs as Mm. well in Heidelberg Mm. and uh, Mm. Preston and Thornbury. and and Is this little pocket, I think uh, many people might want to see it gentrify and become Mm. uh, just another Preston or or what reservoir is starting to become. Is that a danger? Is that something that you really are concerned about?
0: My concern is if if, uh, the sense of community that we have here um, is lost, Hmm. and people don't feel like they can any more be a part of something um that that would be a shame um, but i think there's there's an incredible resilience still amongst the people who are of the uh you know generation or or that uh, group of people who are you know struggling with disadvantage uh, they'll always be here and there are some great services around the place uh, to support them too hmm. and uh, enable them to to be best who they can be, including ourselves, uh, I'm pleased to say. So I, d- I don't think that'll that'll be lost, no. no. Uh, gentrification, it's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, oftentimes it means pushing some of those f- folks out, uh, but I think the government has uh, committed itself to making sure that they maintain... The number of houses that were, but the nature of the housing is going to be different. Like they're building a new set of uh, uh, new housing estate soon, and my understanding is there are just a lot of two-bedroom places yeah. in the in the uh, the plan. Whereas a lot of our families would have uh, four, five, six, and if you include the Somali population, you're getting up to seven, eight, nine children. Yeah, uh, there's no way they can be. Uh, accommodated in a two-bedroom place my sense is that is a bit of a deliberate ploy to have that particular population move to other places and in a way that's kind of got a bit of a, a sniff of gentrification about it isn't yeah. it you know yeah or, or at least sort of some sort of manipulation of the population uh, engineering of it yeah
1: so where do most people go or end up if they aren't able to live in this I guess it's not a little enclave mm, that mm. is in a great position yes, that yes. is surrounded by services and everything mm, that you need mm. that has someone like yourself that's been here for many many years 21 years is that right that yeah, you've personally yeah. been here and if they're moved on to somewhere where they don't have Malahang Reserve or the mall or the the village itself and those that community what ends up happening to those individuals and those families yeah, yeah. where do they go yeah. what
0: yeah, you're right. This is still considered about the sixth or seventh poorest area in Victoria, just this little area of West Heidelberg. And as they start to redevelop and move, I, I think anecdotally anyway, uh, people are moving into the northern uh, newer suburbs that have been built, up Mernda Way and sort of... Craigieburn. Up, up Craigieburn and, yeah. And out to Whittlesey, those yeah. sorts of areas. So yeah. I think there's a lot of movement going on out that way. And then some of the... Yeah, the cultural groups they'll want to go and naturally enough be where other people from that particular background are. So yep. I think a fair few of the Somali folks have probably moved out to areas in broad meadowsy sort of area where there are some other uh, people out there that uh, they know. My sense is they're upwardly socially mobile. Uh, they are great at having their kids go to school. Yeah. Uh, really value education and value work, and then really get on and. Uh, push themselves and and find other opportunities and in in fact create opportunities so they've got their own shops their own stores so that they're getting on whereas some of the folks the typical anglo people locked in uh, generational poverty just just don't have those resources to to get on because a lot of somali people coming out i often say that when there's strife in a country, it's generally not the poor who can escape yeah, and go somewhere right. else. It's those who have got some resources or yep. some education behind them. So wherever they go, they will make life happen for them. Yeah,
1: mm. and that's been across, I guess, since World War Two and even before yeah. that you've had new arrivals from lots of different places, from southern Europe and, and all the way into... Asia and, and now Africa more and yeah. the Middle East. Mm, mm, but mm. they are the ones that may end up in the middle class with the next generation. They're yes, going to be educated yes. stu- children with a, a a strong sort of family and community background, that a, a church group or a, a local club or something that keeps them together yeah. where it is the oftentimes the, as you said, Anglo or even, you know, multi-generational mm, Australians mm. that are entrenched and, and probably haven't been exposed to any – success for quite a while mm. before i go to the next question on that note i just want to know a little bit more about what how you ended up here and what your backstory is to to get you yeah to this sure place. yeah
0: um i've been uh, uh, i've been a maris brother for uh, 50 years <coughs> i grew up in uh, west australia i'm a dairy farmer of background and then uh, decided that uh un- from the influence of the The brothers that taught me in secondary school, I didn't know any uh, brothers in in primary school but secondary school and thought, gee, I wouldn't mind uh, throwing in my lot with them. And in those days that meant uh, coming over here to Victoria to complete my secondary education at uh, boarding school in Wangaratta, which I did, and then uh, went through the process of uh, training and uh, uh, teacher's training and then uh, went off and, and taught for a while and then went back to university and completed a degree and then continued teaching for oh, probably about 12 years. And then I think as is the case in lots of things, you get promoted to your level of inability. Uh, you know, I think I was a reasonably good teacher and a really good organiser, so I ended up being a you know, year-level coordinator yeah. and a subject coordinator and mucking around with bits of paper rather than dealing with students yeah. and, and staff and had the opportunity to join a group of people who were helping facilitate retreats, especially for year 11 and 12 students in mostly Catholic schools, uh, right across the southern part of Australia and and into New South Wales. So I did that for quite a number of years, including running a retreat centre we had at, at Mount Macedon. So, yeah, I was doing that and really uh, loved doing that, was able to write some resources and gather resources to make them available for, for schools. We were always working with the schools and with teachers in schools in that particular program. And at uh, one stage we were running a retreat for some university students who were teachers and learning about how to construct a retreat uh, for their students by actually doing a retreat. And uh, there was a Sister of Mercy who came along, uh, was with the students there, and she was telling me about this particular community, Exodus community. She, in fact, was a founding member. And uh, my time was coming to an end there. We had a a notion that if you've been in a leadership position for six years, then you hand it over to someone else. So my time was coming to an end there and looking at some other opportunities and options and so I was able to say to my uh, my leader, uh, the provincial of the brothers, I wouldn't mind being able to go and join this uh, community in in West Heidelberg, and uh, with a bit of reluctance, he said, go and find out about it." Yep. So I did, and in the early days, I still had to, uh, I still was running some retreats to bring in some money and and writing retreat programs and trying to. Uh, gain some money through the, the books that we, were, we were selling and also be a part of this community. and So it, it evolved from there and so then I uh, became a, a full-time member of, of this community and never looked back. In fact, I, I said to some people after I'd been uh, in the community for a couple of years because I'd been a, especially a, a religious education teacher and running retreats that... Uh, After I'd been here a few years, I said, oh, now I know what the gospel's about. Just that sense of being able to work with the poor and having the poor to evangelise us and teach us what life is really, really about. It was was quite profound and still is. Mm. They're they're great teachers and uh, I learn a lot from uh, the local people being with them, particularly about resilience and about uh, looking out for the most disadvantaged and the most vulnerable and how you survive as a vulnerable person, how you get your way around some of the institutions uh, that are really um, very oppressive, I find, whether it's DHHS or um, Centrelink, the court systems. They're, they're just awful systems that mm-hmm. people, these people get locked into. So, uh, yeah, I learnt so much from them. I, I'd i been in one court, for example, just to have a bit of a look before I came here. Now I think I've been in every court that there is yeah. numbers of times with different people just uh, as an advocate and just as a companion uh, and a supporter of, of people in those places. And just the other opportunities to learn. For example, this year one of the things we're looking at is uh, women's legal literacy, That's come out of knowing that a lot of women have been uh, struggling with uh, domestic violence and not understanding issues of law and how to work through some of those processes. So we're working with Melbourne Women's Legal Centre and some other agencies and organisations to work with local women in, in helping them become more literate in matters of law. We'll also then do it for blokes later on. And then we're also doing uh, women's um, financial literacy and health literacy. So a few things like that. So, yeah, I would have never dreamed about that yeah. t- until I was here and yeah. start, well, they're very real needs that, that people have. How can we make sure that people have these resources and have this access to education and through that be empowered? And I, I think if, if we can have the women be strong, and resilient they're the ones who are going to bring up the kids yeah and eventually slowly i think society will change and we go back to what you were saying right at the start you know that, that we're, we're going to be building a richer stronger community with with people who yeah can hold themselves up straight and strong and say yeah i, I matter i am someone that it's really important
1: i often have this conversation about why are women's rights so important? Why are they so front and centre in the United Nations Sustainable Sustainable Development Goals, for example, or why is it such a focus in the media, like even if they're just touching on it, but why is it mentioned so much? And I guess middle class Australia maybe don't see the, the difference or the the struggle that many women do have mm-hmm. in so many places around the world, including Australia, including right here. But. When you look into the role that women have in building a society and in building families and, and uh, in bringing up both boys and girls, they are everything in so many ways, aren't they? Mm,
0: mm. I've just been reading michelle obama's uh, book on on becoming I think she calls it, you know, and just seeing that while they were going through the process of Barack becoming the the president and all that sort of stuff and, and the impact that uh, that had on her and her two girls and the whole family and she was the one that was sort of obviously holding it all together. I said, yeah, good. Uh, just reaffirmed for me that very thing, the incredibly value, of, you know, the value that there is for, for mums and for women. And the other thing that, you know, I don't know, I'm hardly be the one to be talking about women's needs and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I also read at the end of last year Melinda Gates's book where she talks about the work that they do with the foundation that she and, and yeah. Bill have got and the work that they do in so many different countries and particularly for women and girls yeah. all over the place. I said, like, wow. And you just, I just started to realise the incredible disadvantage that the world has placed women in and, mm. and men have placed women yes. in, you know? yeah. So we've, we've just got to address it. We've got to turn it around. And, and why? Because of what we said before, the, the women are the ones who are bringing up the children yeah. and they're going to make more resilient and happier and, and stronger and well-educated kids, boys and girls, who are then going to be able to be great contributing citizens to society. Yeah. And and bring about change. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And and the, and the grandparents, uh, especially the grandmothers yes. there. I love that word, that grand, that's like grand piano, or yeah, grand final, yeah. <laughs> grandmother, you know, bigger than, you know, yep. and the enormous resources of wisdom that they have, if we can tap into it and make that available to the community rather than just just deny it or not give them a, a really strong voice in community so one of the things we do around here is try to make sure that uh, women have a voice that it, that is heard and we listen carefully to, to what they have to say and oftentimes many of them have been so put down in their their life earlier on even as children with all sorts of Abuse and victimisation that uh, they don't value their own voice and their own position. So to to build that and that takes a lot of years and uh, a lot of hesitancy. I find in a lot of women and, and blokes too, to accept their own value and mm. their own worth and uh, say yes, I, I do matter and my voice does matter. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: That, the,
0: other, the other bit of that, I think, in in terms of leadership. Uh, I smile to myself sometimes because one of the things we hope to do over the 20, 25 years that we've be going is is build local leadership in, in people, not just women but men and women. And uh, I'd say we've, we've pretty much failed. And then I often think about that and said, well, when did we ask the local people did they want to be leaders? Mm. And when did we ask them what does that look like? Yeah. And I think when we've given power or responsibility some to some of our local people who have been living in generational poverty, their notion of leadership is I'll tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and you better do it that way Yeah. or there'll be trouble. Whereas a middle-class way is more, well, let's collaborate, let's consult, yep. uh, let's work together and doing something. Yeah. So it's a whole different model. So when we were thinking of developing leadership in people, we were thinking about that model, yeah, which is not their way of doing it. Uh, so, yeah, there's it, a there's a lot of work to be done in in that kind of space, and that that connects with the whole power and empowering of women yeah. too. I think.
1: Yeah. So, when working towards empowering women and empowering people to become leaders, are they are many of the people that maybe were put into leadership positions and and took it in that really authoritarian sort of way? Is that something they want to do, or they do they have the the capability or the the understanding of the successful, or the success or potential success of collaboration of empowering more people, or is that something that, is it something to teach and then and start again, or yes, is it something I, that will never?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's something that needs to be learned, and but also we probably need to learn about how they would see leadership and, and power and mm. control and influence, you know. Don't mean to say one's wrong and one's right. they they're both got their sort of possibilities, but I know as a person coming from middle-class background, I know which one I prefer yeah. and which one I do think works better. But, yeah, yeah there, are, there are aspects of, uh, of both that need to be recognised and, and then built on what does happen i find around here that when people come in with that sort of sense of power and do it my way it just alienates people yeah uh, and it can build up resentment in that sense it doesn't doesn't work we have to find another way but uh, when people learn that other way and can collaborate and empower and enrich and value someone else's point of view I think they say oh gee this is good this works yeah. and and we can pursue with that
1: and maybe a lot of these cultures may be honor based or elder based especially and and when that happens maybe if there's not that mutual respect to start with it becomes frustrating and yes. it's banging your head yeah. against the wall and mm. and really saying no 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 you have to listen to me like I did with my grandfather but there was that or grandmother or whatever it was so there was yeah. that mutual respect yeah that was there that allowed then to, mm, you mm. seek my counsel and I will provide Patriotic, my wisdom yeah, yeah. And, and you walk away and try it. Mm, mm, but mm. perhaps that's really difficult with younger people not showing that necessarily respect or even other people in the community that don't look up to that yeah. leader as a, in a respectful manner and that cycle yes, of yes, um, yes. hopelessness continues.
0: Yeah. Well, I think culturally patriarchy is still alive and well. yeah, uh, And particularly for a lot of our people where where fathers were dominant and, and people to be a bit fearful, a bit bit feared, and so you take notice of them. Um, that was the the style that was learnt. Mm. There was power and, and control and manipulation, yeah. which are not necessarily healthy and, and helpful ways of uh, going about doing society, I think.
1: There's so many of our communities and societies looking up to that with a Putin or a Trump yeah. or oh, yeah. even... Um I guess Scott Morrison tried it at, mm. at times as well the, and Tony Abbott was that. So I guess looking at these people that come in and, and have that sense of power and dominate a room and rip up a deal and start mm. again mm. and it's mm. my way or nothing and that appeals to so many people that are struggling, that they wanted oh, yeah. to see this grab me by the hand and the scruff of the neck and bring me with you mm. but mm. it doesn't work. No,
0: no. <laughs> I was working with one young family here who had their – Children re- removed for a, for a while and uh, remember I was talking with the dad and he was saying it's my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. You know? that's, that's He, he obviously learnt that from someone. Yeah. And that was what he was spouting and he was yeah. telling his partner that she had to do it his way or she go find someone else, yeah. you know? really unhelpful kind of absolutely <laughs> stuff and so he had to relearn a whole way of valuing someone else's opinion and oh what you're a woman and I got to take notice of her yeah. you know humanizing
1: someone else yeah, yeah, in a way yeah, isn't yeah, it yeah yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah but he'd picked that up from the way he'd been brought up yeah. and it just so that's what we have got to do break some of these cycles so first of all you have to identify them see what they are and what's good in it and what's not so good in it and then to start well what bits of this do we want to change what do we want to keep
1: and about asking for the voices of those in the community to define that isn't it
0: exactly yes, yes yeah. yeah 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 i just wanted to comment on how this community manages to survive the the resources that we we have because uh, there's no availability of, of funds from the, the people who come to our programs. For example, every Wednesday we ha- have a meal for about 60 people come. It's all provided free. When we have uh, a camp or a holiday, as we do, uh, in, in January we take about... Um, this year we had 65 people away on a camp. We ask people to contribute uh, about $50 towards the total cost of uh, the, the camp, which is luckily only about $200. But gives gives people a sense of yeah I've made a contribution and they can so a bit again of, of dignity yeah that I've I've contributed something so we we try to try to do that but um, what I find really rich in this community is the generosity of other people around when they see that here is a group of uh, people the Exodus community volunteers who are wanting to to make a difference in the lives of people in a way that's not dominating, uh, but it is empowering and lifted up and and including people, people want to come on board with that. And so we have, have, for example, four Rotary Clubs that uh, support us in a variety of different ways, not just with uh, money but with uh, personnel and support, like if we had a barbecue, for example, or had a... uh, as we had one time recently some volunteers working with us for a day, 15 or 20 volunteers, so the Rotary Club came in and put on a barbecue for those people. So that, that collaborative kind of work. We have incredible support from local Bendigo Bank, who are very community-minded and seem to be pleased to be able to be engaged with us in some of the activities that we're doing because they know that what we do really does build community and, and work with local people. We get a lot of mutual support from other agencies and organisations, particularly uh, Olympic Adult Education here and the banuel Community Health Service that are here. For example, if we have someone who might need gambler's help, we can call up there and uh, that person maybe can fast-track their... Uh, their process for getting in, for example, and then uh, they get the support they want, and then we'll hear maybe from the someone up there, a social worker, for example, who's come across a family who needs some, just some social support, and so can we meet with that family, and so they're they're part of who we are too. Uh, a lot of schools, as I mentioned before, uh, I think we have uh, over 200 students here last year come to learn about powerlessness and poverty and disadvantage by coming and being part of who we are and then we go to schools and talk to students about what we do and why we do it and what the community is like and those schools in turn if we ask uh, sometimes we don't ask but if we want some funds for example for some Particular piece of equipment, or for the camp that we had, they're incredibly generous, and they've got their ways of uh, getting money. And some of those schools would provide gifts for our kids at Christmas time, collect vouchers or Mikeys, things that really make a difference in in the lives of people. So a whole lot of. uh, Agencies and organisations, the local manual council have been fantastic in in support, especially in the youth programmes that we had. So we're not just doing stuff on our own. That whole uh, collaboration with uh, a wider community, I think, is something that really builds uh, builds a society and and makes it sustainable. Mm. So if uh, we lack a little bit somewhere along the track, or you know, fall in a bit of a heap, there are others who who are doing it. Yep. I was talking to another group recently, Banzic, and found out that they were doing some food relief and we do a little bit of that. So I I think it's pointless in having lots of different uh, organisations doing, almost competing for the same place. Let's find out who, what strengths different organisations have, who does what well, and encourage them to do it and let your people know. I'll go to this particular group for that particular group. So, yeah, I, I like that about how our community is, is, is working or our neighbourhood and others in the community, yeah. We recently were able to secure from Banyul Council four houses that they had purchased and that were going to be demolished to make way for a, probably a, a housing block themselves And but they don't need it straight away. And I said, well, don't build those four perfectly good houses. Give them to us and we'll make them available to people who are housing insecure at the moment or... Yep needing some housing and a fairly long process. We we're able to get these four houses and we're able to, <clears throat> in partnership with a lot of different groups, get them going for, for people. And there we had 11 different agencies or organisations working with us and over 73 different individuals were involved in that whole process of doing, doing that. And through one Rotary Club, one of the members knew an electrician and got in touch with him uh, did the electrical work on the houses and there wouldn't have been any change out of $20,000. We'd never saw an invoice. Uh, it was all just donated. And then another Rotarian knew the guy who uh, I think imports, maybe even manufactures, I'm not sure, caboodle kitchens, two caboodle kitchens for nothing. And then someone else came along and installed those kitchens. Yeah, so that, that yeah. whole community kind of thing is... Uh, what I find is one of the richness of this particular area. I don't know if that would happen in other communities, but certainly it's been my experience here and I've really loved that chance to get out and um, just let people know uh, what are the needs, what are the real needs. And some of when we go to schools or go to a, uh, a bank presentation, we take some of our local people with us and they... They tell the folks, this is what life is like. Yeah. And so people hear it and so, say, wow, that's what... And that group are helping work. Let's let's partner with them or I want to come and volunteer with them. So we've been able to build quite a, uh, a rich and a good base of, of, of support for the local people. Mm.
1: How m- many of the local people, I guess, are involved in, directly in the charitable or the more voluntary, hard working? Part of keeping the community spirit alive?
0: I would say there would be, we could really easily round up 20 people who are local people living in generational poverty themselves who are part of who we are and are quite actively involved in you know, the, the ministries and activities of, of Exodus and supporting us. And some of those, not all of them, would be able to go to schools and, and speak, tell their story which is pretty powerful sorts yeah. of stories, uh, whether it might be, and we've got some current people who are asylum seekers and are able to you know, help educate uh, students and, and teachers ab- about that and ourselves uh, about that uh, particular circumstance. Yeah, and then we we would have at least uh, 100 different families that we are engaged with around the area. They're more probably recipients of our, our support rather than contributors. Yep. But we find that if we are able to uh, work with those people and find out, well, would you like to be a part of what we do? How might you do it? Oh, I could come along and sort of supervise or be there, the host person for a Wednesday night when food is distributed. Or I could come and do this. Or I come and... Yeah. People want to be involved. It's just a matter of... Uh, being uh, invited and yep. given an opportunity to do that because oftentimes they've just been tucked away and ignored and yep. haven't been encouraged or invited to, to be a part of anything much. And that value,
1: that self-worth, yeah, if yeah. that's not there, uh, you do you not know, put your hand up and say, I can do this. Mm, it's, mm, you need mm, that invitation yeah, and yeah, that probably yeah. two or three or four invitations and that constant, mm, 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 you know, you are welcome, you yeah, are this community, yeah, uh, yeah. you are well, valuable. One
0: of, one of the tricky things in that though is that people say, uh, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do that. They're great at volunteering to do stuff but they don't necessarily have the resources to do it or the yep. capacity to do it. They kind of maybe think that they do or what they like to be. What they want to be is involved. Yeah. And so, say I'll do that. And when it comes to do it, it doesn't happen. And then they say, oh, well, I I made a phone call but they weren't home and I did this but they didn't do it. I went and visited someone they didn't do it. And then shame fits in, sits in. And so we don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm forever around here when people are, when we're looking at getting people to do jobs that we make sure we match up real skills with the jobs that are required. For example, we have, uh, when we go to schools, some of our folks are really good and able to do public speaking. And we've had a couple of come along and said, "Yeah, I want to do that." And they've come along and just locked up, haven't been able to speak, and been an embarrassment for themselves yep. and embarrassment of the kids. But some of those people are fantastic at being hosts here mm. to students when they come here and show them around the neighbourhood yep. and talk about their life experience. So it's just trying to match uh, skills and experience with with tasks that they can do. So. It's, Yeah, people get that little bit of confidence and then they can go somewhere else, yeah. We've also done, uh, over the years, they've done some training in different things, especially in public speaking for some. Some have done that and that's uh, been a great way to help people build their confidence. Mm. I'm
1: listening to this and I, I do, I sense joy and I sense optimism and I sense excitement. How do you keep that, I guess, attitude up when you do face people that come to your door asking for food for their daughter that's in year eight, mm. or mm. that you see what the, the things that you do see that there is a need for, I guess, legal literacy or food health or you know the role of women in society and, and building that up, it's so easy when we watch mm. the news or we, we see a horrible event like coronavirus, everyone's freaking out and going to the shops and trying to buy everything. It's that instant idea of scarcity and, and stress. You're in the middle of an environment that actually gets to see what most people don't see very often, mm. yet you keep that really positive attitude and that joy and that strength and that fire alive. What drives you? Yeah, yeah.
0: There, there'd be a, few, a couple of things, Matt. One is, I think, belonging to an organization that I belong to, the Marish Brothers. So it's a bigger family of uh, men and women, young and old, that you know has, has just got a lot of energy for me, admittedly. We get limited sort of support from that Marist organisation here. We've got to go and ask and say, "Look, this is what we need." But just belonging to that is good. The other group I belong to that uh, really uh, gives me a lot of support and encouragement and energy and, and life is my own family. They're all in West Australia, but I got really good connections with with family there, and I get a lot of encouragement and, and support there. And I think. Uh, just having grown up uh, on a dairy farm, and with nature, and knowing that some things, there's uh, there's seasons and there uh, mm. there's 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 time and you you can't hurry things. You got to wait and be be patient. That certainly is sort of an attitude that I have, or something a part of my DNA. I think. The other thing I notice happens around here a lot that people will catastrophize yes. uh, yeah. and there's, oh, big drama and all and yeah, people try to suck it, people into a, a vortex of excitement and stuff and um, for some reason rather I tend to say, sort of, no, I don't go there. Uh, well, okay, yeah, you're really upset, just come in and just sit down and have a cup of tea and we'll just, and before you know it, there's a dissipation of, of kind of pretty much negative energy. Mm. Why can I do that? Uh, I think it's from just having lived a few years yep. and seeing that yeah it'll it'll generally be all right you know it, things will figure out. Got a great trust in in providence. Uh, whatever we might mean that uh, in my case I suppose it's that uh, God will provide. I know. I remember years ago we were planning a family camp. We knew it would cost us about seven thousand dollars. We didn't have seven thousand dollars. And we said, oh, well, let's go ahead and we'll plan it anyway. And that very afternoon in the mail, there was a check for $7,000. So stuff like that just, <laughs> yeah. just happens, you know. And uh, it, it doesn't happen all the time, but I, I've got that great sense that if it's meant to happen and we, we think it through and we work with people, we build partnerships, we plan well, it's meant to happen, it will happen. If you just come in pretty recklessly and say, oh, I'm going to do this without a lot of thought and stuff, well, probably going to fall over. But, uh, yeah, we make sure that, that we do do plan well and use our resources and and look at what has happened before and work with local people and make sure that we, you know, do the necessary collaboration. Things things seem to work out, you know. It doesn't mean to say that it's uh, not sometimes bit rough I had my cheek busted one time the a, a, a person hit me um, but that that's pretty pretty unusual it was probably because I was trying to uh, prevent a bit of an altercation between people two people and I should have left it to them to figure it out mm. rather than me figure it out so probably got what I deserved in a way you know so. was that early on was that yeah all that was that you... yeah very early on <laughs> yeah yeah but in those days there was a fair bit of violence around this area too mm. there was a, or there were some people who resorted or a lot of people now still resort to violence but it seemed to be a bit bit worse than I think just today I've been working with a group of students and uh, we were having lunch and the teacher who was with the students who are 16 students was there and and someone another person from the community was behind me probably about six eight feet behind me uh, or a couple of meters behind me calling out Harry 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 and (laughs) They were all looking at me and say, "Well, aren't you going to turn around and listen?" And the teacher said, "Oh, he's calling you." I said, "Oh no, oh, I'm here. If he wants me, i <laughs> So you know, I, I, and I knew that it would be. He just had a spur of the moment idea, and oh, I had to have my attention right now. And and my, right now, I'm having my lunch and I'm engaging with these other people. You know, so <laughs> have to wait for him to to come around. Was once upon a time, I probably oh yeah, jump around and pay attention there. So. It's just being a bit more discerning and, and just helping the people know that yeah 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 life will be okay. <laughs> it goes back yeah. to that idea of
1: those short term, you know, um, almost the uh, manic. Yeah, something. If yeah, it's yeah. A, an idea of yeah. a, in a manic oh, yeah. state of mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, if you jump on that and, and mm. they do suggest mm. oh, I'll run this organisation or I'll do this, and then it it doesn't happen, and then that depression starts to set in. Yeah. By having that patience, having that balance, Mm. you're able Mm. to say, come back to see me a bit later on or we'll have a big chat. And is that like mania? Was it that manic stage or was it actually an idea that was there for a long time?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other thing I suppose that really enables me to stick at this is the fact that we work as a team. You know, It's not just me doing stuff Mm -hmm. but you've got a a group of people who work together. Sure, I might have some wacky ideas at times but I'll run them past other people and refine them and... Together we'll come up with uh, a way to to do something. So, and that that gives a bit of a safety net, and uh, yeah, makes sure that uh, things do happen appropriately and in their own time. And it might be, oh yeah, well that's something for us to work on slowly, you know, and and just let. It's a bit like I suppose having a good brew of beer, you know, eat it and ferment and take its time, and yeah. then when it's ready, it's ready, you know. yeah. And the
1: longer it takes, the the better it will be. Could a lot well of the time, be. yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, yeah.
1: The first time I met you was at St John's Primary School over in Heidelberg, right. and you were talking to students that were going to have their confirmations, right? And I remember. I was really inspired by what you had to say, whether you believe it or not. No, definitely really inspired. And
0: I hope the kids were.
1: And the kids (laughs) were too. I think the kids took a lot out of it. But if I can, I know that it, it, um, yeah, it it was really good. It wasn't just directed at them. It was a real life lesson that Mm. kids will take on and hopefully carry with them. And you told a story. And I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot to try and remember this story. But it was about... A group of people on a boat or on a ship that were right. thirsty. Right. And I've always tried to retell it or remember it, but I, I can't quite do it. But it was this tale that mm. I would love to mm. hear again, and I think a lot of people would. If, if you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Of course, with any story, I mean, you, there's the uh, what do they say? The there's the truth, and then what really happened. <laughs> yeah. But <clears throat> my sense is that. Some of this really happened. It was recorded once upon a time. Yeah, it was a story. Well, you know that um, around the equatorial regions of the world, there's a uh, probably a bit different now with climate change, but there are certain ocean currents and there are certain winds that blow. And way back in the days of of sailing ships, they knew about that and they would uh, get into these winds to help them move. But they also knew that there was a uh, a part of the world or globe where there were these doldrums where at certain times of the year the winds just wouldn't blow and ships apparently w- would get caught in these particular uh, places and uh, because they had limited uh, food and water it wasn't uh, unknown that uh, people might be uh, stranded and end up end up dying from lack of particular lack of water and then perhaps someone would, another ship would come across them and they were all these skeletons and these ghost ships that they came Mm. to be known apparently. And anyway, this story is that this particular ship was uh, becalmed and we're talking about an area around about uh, Cuba-ish or or something like that in that part of the, the world And it was going nowhere for uh, a number of days and uh, the captain realised that they were probably going to perish and told the sailors that uh, they would have to fend for themselves and water was distributed and there was only a very amount of water, a small amount of water per sailor uh, to live on. And, of course, you're in tropical areas, so it's hot and humid and you're wanting to drink a lot of water, but still they held out hope and every day they made sure that they flew the flags, that's how they signal in those days, put the flags up and sending a message that we have no water. And towards the end of their their time, which would have been the end of the the life for these sailors, they saw a long way away in the distance another ship, there was great excitement, so off the flags go, help, we have no water. And they were looking through their telescopes and waiting for a signal to come back, and nothing was coming back, so... Up the flags go again later that evening, and uh, they found that this other ship was signalling back to them, and the signal that they could decipher was lower your buckets and get your own water, and you know they felt devastated because you know if you're a a sailor maritime person you always go to the help of someone else because they couldn't sail across to them because there were no winds going mm. and no no currents pushing in them but uh, the next morning. A couple of the sailors apparently died overnight and they were buried north uh, uh, overboard. And then first light, the signal goes up, help, we have no water. And the signal comes back, lower your buckets, get your own water. And so some of the the sailors already exhausted said to the captain, perhaps we should put buckets over the the edge and and draw up the water. We're not talking about little plastic laundry buckets here they're big wooden Mm. buckets with ropes on and throw them over when you're already exhausted but apparently over the side of the ship were throwing some of these buckets or a bucket and hauled it up and gathered around and smelt the water and it smelt freshish and tasted it and it was not as saline it was able to be drunk and before they knew it they were able to haul up enough water to fill up their barrels and and have water and eventually the winds came and off they went. So the other ship was telling them, look, right underneath you is this is water that you can drink. And who would believe that? But uh, unbeknownst to them, which they later found out, they were in the mouthway of the massive Amazon River, which pushes water with such force out into the ocean that um, the water is still able to be drunk. And then they were parked right in it and uh, didn't know what were able to do. Get their water and eventually got back home. And apparently the story was told and written down, and it came out in the ship's log or something. And 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 you told the story in in what context? So what do you take from that message? Do you? You Yeah, I think for for the oftentimes I think we have within us the store of wealth and goodness and knowledge that is needed to get us through life. And. Sometimes it takes someone outside of us to say, hey, you can do this and encourage you to do it or invite you to do it and uh, trust that that you can, can do it uh, and put confidence in you. So call forth from you your best self. And uh, I, I think that's what's really important around here too, that we do that with people. So it was probably, in, and I think for these kids who are going to be confirmed, that was the the story I was wanting to get to, and look, you you have these incredible gifts within you that are probably latent still and you'll grow into them, but it's really important that there be some voices out there encouraging you and calling you forth to use your gifts and abilities and and, and talents. So, And I think that's that's a gift that each of us has too, to call out the goodness in others as well as being able to hear when people... Uh, give us that encouragement and that that support. To mm. call out the goodness in others mm. is is brilliant. Mm. Uh, it is,
1: yeah. When you yourself may not be able to do it all on your own, yeah. To yeah. just to have that little bit of voice, have that trust in yourself, mm. to be able mm. to mm. be able to know that you are an influence. Yes. No yes. matter who yes. you are, on yes. someone or or a group yes. of people. Yes. So yes. to yeah. call to call out and and ask for the goodness to come out in others is. Mm. It's something that we need a lot of, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And it's it's. Uh, I think it's a truism that oftentimes we are not aware of our own, or other people will see the gifts that we have that we ourselves don't see or don't recognise. Yeah. And if someone else tells us about them, or and it points out to us, look, you can do this, or you have done that before, or whatever, and say, oh yeah, gee, I can do that, and that enables us then to to, uh, you know, grab hold of something that perhaps we didn't know that we had.
1: Mm. I know that you mentioned earlier that you went from moving papers to uh, being able to see what the gospel was really about mm. and mm. that was probably a few years into your, I guess, mission as a brother. Did you have a moment like that prior to becoming, to joining the Marist Brothers and becoming a Marist Brother? What was the catalyst? You mentioned some of your teachers.
0: Mm. Well, it's interesting. I I often tell the story of when I was a kid in primary school. We used to, there were a whole 17 of us in our own little primary school from grade uh, one to so grade, whereabouts, grade was it seven sorry? in, in, in south-west West Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, during the September holidays we would go in, because it was a government school, we were the only Catholics in that district and we'd go into the local convent and the Sisters of Mercy would uh, have us there for a week and they'd teach us some catechism and true religion and... We'd make you know, first communion, all that kind of stuff, and uh, I was nine. I remember because it was the second year I was there, and we only we only anyway, I was I was nine year old kid, and uh, the parish priest, who was a wonderful bloke, came to the class, and you know, like big people ask little people what they're going to be when they grow up. He was asking us what we're going to be, and uh, most of us were going to be farmers or truck drivers or train drivers because we had steam trains and stuff. There and it was pretty exciting. And he came to me and I said I was going to be a boy sister. And he said, oh, you mean a priest? I said, oh, no, Father, not that I didn't like him. Or, but I, there was something about the life of those Sisters of Mercy that made that little nine-year-old kid think, oh, I want to, I want to be like them. I didn't know there were such things as brothers. But it was something about you know, who they were and how they treated us that just triggered off that little kid's sort of imagination or something. Then that just stayed there and it was only years later when I actually went to the boys' school, the brothers' school and I met brothers and a brother was going around talking to us about joining the brothers and travelling and doing missionary work and stuff like that and I said, oh, yeah. So it was was something quite outside of myself but I think probably that little nine-year-old kid was also... uh, affected by by once again nature i know the church in those days used, those used to tell us how you know we're all bad and that god was gonna get us and we had to do this and had to do that and i used to ride my horse around in the bush outside our place for hours on end and i had no sense of god as being someone like that i had this wonderful sense of a presence in nature and in my horse and just wandering around in the in the bush and seeing the flowers and smelling the, the, the leaves and hearing the rustle of the trees and all that sort of stuff and just that sense of wonder and awe and goodness. And it wasn't sort of something that was shameful and, and guilty and that we had to perform certain rituals and practices to be, you know, be who we were meant to be. So thankfully that was just, that just happened for me and then when the sisters came along and I saw them being good people and, and doing stuff that was uh, helpful for a wee kids, so I said, oh, yeah, gee, that seemed to be a bit of a natural progression and uh, it just went from there, you know. It was, yeah. So I wasn't quite knocked off my horse but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was on my horse in the bush oftentimes and uh, had, that, uh, had that just lovely sense of... Uh, I suppose God's goodness, really, mm. in, in, in in nature in, and yeah, yeah. in beauty and in what was around. Yeah, and, yeah. and in and in the people around us. Yeah. You know, they were really good people, good citizens in the area, and uh, there was no harshness and brutality. And and yeah, there was there was struggle. We obviously lived pretty simply and pretty poorly, but uh, we had had what we needed. Mm. Mm.
1: Sometimes people are inspired by tragedy, or sometimes by a need for, I guess, saving their community or, or a challenge that mm, really mm, du- directs mm, them to mm. become who they become and for you it was almost the goodness that yes, you wanted to tap into that goodness and and yeah. bring that to yeah. others perhaps, yeah. was yeah. it, yeah. or yeah, yeah, to live and, in it?
0: Yeah, and being inspired by other really good people around the area, you know, the, the other farmers, they obviously struggle. We I can remember seasons when it was really dry or really hot and people had to struggle and... You know, the cows would go dry or whatever, but there there was a lot of people who got together and did things well together. And this particular parish priest we had, he was uh, he was a great uh, builder, physical builder, and I remember he came out and spent a couple of weeks on our farm helping Dad build a big chicken pen, chook pen. We had about 500 chooks. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he came out and helped do that. So they're, they're that sort of... Stuff that went on in the community, you know, it was just helping out. And then I know dad employed a lot of the local um, Italian people to come and dig the potatoes when it was yep. time to to dig spud. So, and we always had sort of some Aboriginal people living with us or around about helping out in the farm. So there was always that sort of sense of community yep. and sense of helping people out and being helped out by other people. Yeah. yeah. What went on in terms of uh, their uh, payment and stuff, I don't know. but <laughs> I know they always seem to be pretty happy yeah. and, uh, and helpful around the area. Mm.
1: Mm. That The inspiring part that I take from that, which is uh, there's many, but one in particular is that so many people today say maybe we just need to allow climate change to happen or the world to start falling apart and then we'll do something, then mm. we'll act, mm. then we'll... Mm. Try and rebuild it once we know that we've lost everything because everyone feels so – and this is from conversations I'm putting so many words into so many people's mouths that may have hope and joy but I want to have joyful and really passionate conversations because I'm hearing in so many circles that I'm trying to avoid a bit more and to put myself in the, the path of love and not fear or hate. Yes. But there is so much of that and that's based on we just need it to fall apart um so we can rise and be the people we want to be mm. but you were able to see a world that you could have stayed in and and been happy and i'm seeing something good and i'd like to and at at nine or or then when later on when you when you joined the brotherhood and then lessons from there i guess you took that and even now i'm i'm sensing the the similarities and the parallels with the community a diverse population of so many different people being brought together mm. and <clears throat> If we all do that, that can be m- much more inspiring and we start off at a much better footing than if we are just to wait for the end times before we do something. Yes, yes, so yes. so to do something and be passionate and be involved and to take a leap of faith or whatever it may be mm. to mm. stop moving papers from one end to the desk to the next and actually be the person you want to be is something I want to start doing but it would should be an inspiring story for many people and – Something I wanted to mention earlier potentially about the the court system or the DHS and all, all of these uh, mm. organisations, I'm sure that they're full of people that went in with the intention of doing great things absolutely, yeah, and yeah. that they've yeah. potentially just had so much red tape or admin or, or mm. paper to mm. shift mm. and now they're in that, getting paid well and, and living a comfortable life but perhaps not living the values that they really yes, want yes. to live and, and aspire to and, and perhaps live many years before they say, oh, what did I do for the mm. last 20, 30 years? I, I had a family or I had friends or travelled but did I make the difference I wanted to make? Mm. So that idea of purpose and, and direction and is the push that hopefully we can inspire a couple of people to to start doing. But at the point that you became a brother, was that at the end of your secondary schooling was. Was it a tough choice at the time? I know that you felt inspired, but was it still tough? Were you supposed to work on the farm? or?
0: Uh, well, interesting, yeah. <clears throat> when I told my dad, because uh, my older brother had uh, left home, uh, home by, by this time, he'd gone to boarding school and he'd go, gone off, and uh, I told my dad I wanted to go and join the brothers, and he says, oh, what do you want to do a silly bloody thing like that for? I'll have to sell the farm if you go. I said, oh, I think I need to do it. And I left and he sold the farms. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. So I had to stay. But it wasn't wasn't quite as bad as that. So it was a, it was just a progression of a lifestyle, I suppose. You know, I, I completed my secondary schooling and then we went off to the novitiate with a group of about seventeen other young blokes and did our a couple of years of training to be brothers and then went off and did my teacher's training and just, me, the next part of it was to go and teach and the next part of it was to do some university uh, work and then teach at a higher level. So just these progressions uh, along the way that seemed to just, uh, yeah, we just took one at a time. Now it didn't, wasn't the case that uh, I never felt like oh, I'm in the wrong, wrong spot or do I want to get out of this. I remember one stage I said, oh, I'm sick of this, so I want to go home and I thought, oh, what will my godmother say? Because I had this great, uh, wonderful godmother and a lot of time for her And that was the thing that kept me going for a while. <laughs> it's not my motivation for staying now, I must say, but uh, just for that time it was. So, different things like that along the way, enough to sort of kick me along. So, no, you can do this, or it's okay to, to stay doing this.
1: What does it, what does training to be a brother involved what what is the role of a brother for for those that don't know i've met many brothers and actually ha- and known them as teachers or or missionaries or people that have found a place to live together and help out in a community but i don't know much more than that is no, and well, some people would know nothing at all no <laughs> no
0: i guess they're the roles that we might do whether we're teachers or nurses or social workers or or whatever it is but i i guess at the heart of it there's there's a call to uh, live together with other, uh, uh, in my case it was other other men. That that's that's since changed. We've got men and women in in our maris, in a in a community, and so we collaborate and, and work together to do some of the ministry we we're doing. So if I said, I, I some people say, oh, you can do the same stuff as you're married, but if I was married, I would have to, I would say I got a responsibility to a partner and. Presumably and hopefully to some kids, and so that takes a fair bit of time and energy away from what I want to do, what I might like to do. Whereas in this particular lifestyle, able to commit ourselves more to to the ministry and uh, and, and that that's where the, the focus might be. And there's there's great support in being with a with a group of like-minded like-minded people uh, doing a particular uh, task. Yeah, I know it's it's a hard one even to talk about, but I just know when you're in it and and it works, you know it fits, yeah, and, and it's good, you know, and it brings a lot of joy and a lot of possibility, and and a, and a lot of challenge, you know. We, uh, I just think that, uh, you know, one of the big challenges for me here is knowing that I'm financially secure, yet I'm the one who takes a vow of poverty, mm. and <laughs> the people I work with, yeah, uh, are really financially insecure. A bit, I, I guess. I don't talk it so much as about poverty now as a sort of probably a promise of generosity mm. that what I have I will share with whoever you know? yeah i I just really like to keep my boots but yeah. I'll pretty much give away anything else I've got and make make the house I'm living in available to other people. I had a homeless guy living here with me for for quite a while, and before that, a young student living in the house with me for quite a lot while just because there was a there's a place here so uh, not really kind of all that fussy about that because they might be fussy to live with some old bloke like me, but uh, that's worked out. Yeah, so that's kind of what the the brotherhood is kind of like a bit. Mm.
1: Is that idea of living, I guess, more frugally or, or with generosity and having less material, is that freedom to you? Is that no. a way to live freely? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. This, uh, as I said... Uh, about the only thing that really matters to me is probably my boots. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't have that strong sense of attachment to stuff mm. um, yeah, or place, for that matter. Uh, if I might go to one place and then that's wherever I am, that's where home is, really. The downside of it is, you know, when I'm in a, in a particular place, I make some great friends and then you move on and it's pretty hard to maintain those friendships as well as create new ones in a place where you are. So some of those old... Uh, connections have to be let go of. Doesn't mean to say you're no longer friends. And in fact, you know, I, I can meet up with people now I haven't seen for a long time, and we start off straight away where we were because yep. we had some great moments together. Mm.
1: So you've mm. been in the Olympic Village Exodus Community for twenty-one, twenty-one yeah, yeah. years. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, yeah. So you would have well, you haven't left for a while. No, <laughs> but people would have left you. Is that right? Or from the area of people come and gone. Not very many.
0: okay. no, so there's uh, there's been a few uh, that I've been close to, particularly well, people in the community that I've lived with before, uh, close in the community. I lived for ten years with uh, Sally, who was the sister of Mercy, who first brought me into this. Yep. We shared this house together for that ten years, and before that there was uh, Frank and um, a couple of other women who were part of the community, and they've moved on or one since died. Yeah, So, uh, and they were, they were pretty significant kinds of relationships that we, we built up of uh, mutual trust and, and support and care. Uh, they still continue, but uh, they're not uh, sort of relationships that I have to pursue, so you're, you're living closely all the time. But I was thinking more of some of the other people in the community who have perhaps moved, particularly some folks who way back in the days of people coming from... Uh, detention centres whether it was Woomera or um, Port Hedland, uh, they were mostly uh, Iraqi people and got to really to be close with them and good friends with them and uh, then they've moved on uh, but still I, I do see them uh, see them occasionally now and then so different ones come and go yeah holding on to relationships is a uh, interesting one isn't it and how they uh, the depths of relationships and the connections that you make and how you are sustained by them or, or not by them?
1: I think relationships is almost everything in a way. I mean many people can go on a private retreat or live in a cave for many mm-hmm. years and, and, and have something about them that they're able to live on their own. But most people need others. Most people need a relationship yep. Yep. of some sort, a a camaraderie, or a, someone mm, to bounce mm. ideas off. I heard a stat recently that people that are lonely live 14 years less, on average, oh, right. than than people that, I guess, have a, mm. a sense of community. Yeah. There's words that I've I've heard often are the the idea of identity, purpose, and community. And people in this area have community a lot of the time. Yes, but they may not have. That sense of self-worth that give, and that provides that identity, perhaps, and maybe mm. they're searching mm. for that. In more wealthy areas, communities starting to disappear. Maybe yes, not wealthy, yes, but the middle so. class. Yeah. yeah is
0: mm.
1: over sorry, how how old are you, Harry, if you don't mind me asking? Seventy-two. Seventy-two. So in your years that are mm. a few more than me, I'm 31. Across your years, have what have you seen change that has perhaps moved us? Have we moved into a less communal society and if we have why and if we haven't why do i feel like we're less community minded than that my parents might have been all the stories i hear a lot of the, the the previous generation tell
0: that's a good question yeah um the sociologist in me needs to have a bit of a look at that um i think one of the things that happens is uh i think consumerism and materialism and technology uh, three of the big ones that erode away a sense of community and a sense of perhaps even personal identity and especially that call to have the latest, uh, to keep up with, especially with technology, but even even clothing and, mm. and things you do. Uh, um, I think that really, uh, really... Eats away at people's sense of their their self. I just know that, especially for young people, uh, you know, whether it's Instagram or whatever it is that they're looking at, and got to have the light right look, and how many likes have I got, and having a, access to this phone all the time to to see who's following me or whatever. You know, that's uh, that's really hard to live up to that. And I think that's really tearing society apart. Now, it's great to have access to that uh, immediate knowledge that you get through technology and some of the other great benefits, but uh, like a lot of things, I mean, the, the gift is, can also be the weakness. You mm. know? The uh, light can also have its, its shadow side. And I, I'm pretty sure that, the yeah, that, that shadow side of, of materialism and consumerism and That access to technology is something that really digs away at uh, a sense of community. That certainly I had when I was a younger person growing up. You know, because we didn't have all that that pressure on us.
1: And it's that pressure, isn't it? The fact you can ride on a horse and be based on a farm and may not see someone for a few hours, you've still got that community because you're all doing a similar thing. Mm, You're all mm, mm. there's not you're not missing out on something. But the fact is that if I'm not in my bedroom with 15 other people on a group chat talking about yes, something yes, yes, and I'm playing cricket outside with my brother, I missed out. I'm going to mm, avoid mm, playing mm. that cricket match and yep. in the backyard or whatever or going down to the creek. I'm going to sit in my room and make sure I'm involved in that because yes, they could yes. be talking about me with teenage years, you know, the, the, yep. the idea of what is happening behind mm, my back mm, or mm. I'm going to miss out. Yeah. So that pressure is really what it's about. Oh, it's incredibly mm. enticing, I think, yeah.
0: to, to people, yeah. And I think you said we used loneliness before. Like I I have hours and hours uh, on my own. Mm. Uh, I'm alone but I'm very rarely lonely. Uh, Matter of fact, I crave being alone at times. And I love going away and doing a a guided retreat or a a quiet retreat or, or something like that. But as I said, it's not loneliness for me. But I think for a lot of people... Being alone is also very lonely and uh, very challenging, I guess that's got to do with upbringing and personality and
1: uh, being you know, able to silence so. your thoughts. I guess if you're lonely, you're wishing for something or yearning for something, or yeah, you're not celebrating you and mm-hmm. what you've mm-hmm. you've been able to be or yes, who you've yes. been able to be. Yes. Does prayer come into your life often anymore or always or has it played a part in?
0: A way, uh, prayer is almost like a constant companion for me. Uh, it's probably the thing that, you know, in a way, it keeps me uh, not being lonely. Um, like I'll go for a walk, and it's is a great sense of uh, communing with the with the universe and with nature and with with God, and being a being a part of the whole, yeah, a whole plan. So yeah, I I will very be rarely being saying formal prayers. I think it's a bit of a big waste but I'll be praying often which means just uh thinking about and reflecting on a bigger picture of of the universe and and of myself and where I I fit into it. And that's where I go back to what I said at the start looking at that book uh, book of joy that Dial Lama and uh, Archbishop Duty you know and uh, just seeing those guys who spend hours and hours uh, especially Dalai Lama in in meditation mm. i certainly don't spend that much much time in meditation but times of meditation are really important for me just to be still and be kind of in touch with myself and and whatever is is going on in the in the in my universe at at the time and also trying to reflect on my response to some of those big issues that you talked about before there's so much pain in the world at the moment and so much worry and so much anxiety it's hideous what's going on in the world uh in some place where there's war and destruction and has been and some people that's all they've ever known and what's my response to that now i sort of in a way my heart breaks for for people in those sorts of situations when i think about them but It's no point in being here in Australia in a comfortable position with a broken heart. What I feel I've got to do is look at the circumstances where I am and respond the best way I can to them, which includes international sort of situations at the moment, coronavirus and the anxiety and worry that people might have about that, and once again, be careful not to catastrophise about it, mm. but still also to be realistic and say, gee, if that's if going to come our way and how we're going to to, to deal with it. And also to um, speak with people and share with people who may be anxious about some of those bigger issues. The whole issue of climate and, and the changing climate, that really concerns me. Uh, and it does, uh, concerns me in seeing the young people, as I did yesterday when we were at a lecture about uh, sustainability and their anxiety about that, Uh, I can get that and understand it and be really frustrated that uh, politicians and others won't get it and do much about it, yet... Even if everyone understood it perfectly well and we did all we could do about it, I don't know that it's a, a reversible kind of thing. As you said before, I think we've got to allow some of the things that, these things to take their course. But there are things we can do about it, like the recent bushfires. You know? mm. uh, uh, sure, we could do hazard reduction and all that sort of stuff, but maybe because of uh, increasing temperatures and, and dryness, it's, it's, a, it's the new... It's the new life that we yeah. have to have to deal with, and so we have to say, "Well, how do we resource ourselves well to to manage with these horrible fires? Are we going to build our houses and have our farms in these sorts of places, or we're we going to farm in lands where we probably shouldn't be farming anyway because there's not enough water? You know, so yeah. it, it, it calls for us to have some have some responses
1: and almost go back to basics too. What do we need? Do we need yes the massive amount of um, I don't know a crop or an animal that we're exporting for huge amounts of profit rather than supporting people. Yes, know. So we possibly can use water correctly Mm. and land Mm. correctly without the need. So it's realigning once again those um, what is it that we actually value as a society, Mm. as a community? Mm. Is it the mega profits? Is it the… And and I'm not blaming farmers either because if you are successful, why wouldn't you jump yes, onto yeah, the next right, paddock and right, buy it and, right. yeah, and do the right do the yeah. right thing by you and your family and build a mm. you're mm. trying to do what's right, but more just saying actually maybe success isn't owning more or having more or mm. or money. It's it's being able to actually say who am I helping? Who am I sharing my life yes, with? Yes, who am yes, I bringing yes. joy to and ending suffering yeah, for? Yeah. Because there's two sort of schools of thought that I get often with, and this is a bit of a philosophy that I jump jump between to. Is life about joy and bringing joy or is life about ending suffering and and not worrying too much about joy Mm, mm. or is it a balance between the two? Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Is it better to live a life full of ups and downs of suffering and and joy or or a stagnant, content life? And and just in my own head now, I think we're all living in the West – western developed nations for in the middle class and and above a content life mm. there's no mm. real threat mm. Mm. you know someone dies or or something happens you you grieve for a while and and it goes back to normal maybe we do need those moments of of nothing, of of emptiness, and then we need, and then we can really celebrate and enjoy those moments of yeah, of yeah, f- yeah. fullness. So mm, mm. What do you have a perspective on that?
0: Well, in that, it just makes me think, Matt, that when the sorts of things that really encourage and inspire and lift uh, me are hearing people talk about sustainability, and people who talk with passion about vegetarianism or veganism or whatever and have done a lot of study and and can talk with me about some of the issues that are involved. I I don't know a lot of that stuff, you know. Part of me would like to, but I really value people who do explore those sorts of probably bigger, bigger issues and global issues and I would see it as being a responsibility I have and a desire I have, in fact, to encourage those people and to make sure that their voices are, are heard and that we engage with those sorts of people and ideas. They're not the sorts of ideas and people that I find in my community here because uh, we're a different sort of community, but when I do come across those sorts of people, I, I want to say, yeah, good on you, and pursue that and, and go with it. So I know that, that that's a sort of deficit in my life um that understanding of a lot of those global issues but i'm not uh, not closed off to them or not wanting to say no that's that's ridiculous or that's stupid you know you should be eating plenty of beef and <laughs> lamb and all that sort of stuff which is an openness
1: you are i'm doing so much you you can't do everything no you can't no, be no, that intellectual no. and that person lecturing Future mm. doctors on whatever, while working with the community so closely and and becoming a trusted member, that's yeah. personally mm. attached to mm. so many people. Mm. However, you've explored and and been open to and understood and grieved a little bit about what is happening. Yes, and oh, yeah. and instead of just hiding away and saying, "Well, stuff mm. it," mm. I'm going to hide away and and forget it and bury my head mm. in the sand. You've said, "Well, what can I do? What what, what can yeah. how can I use my privilege or?" my choice mm. that I do have going back mm. to mm. the idea of yeah. choice. How can I use my choice? How can I manoeuvre the words on my Scrabble ward to, to make the best word possible? So to put that out of the metaphor of Scrabble into the world, how can I use the skills, the gifts, the talents, the people, the strengths that I have yeah. and, yeah. and recognising weaknesses and deficiencies mm. too? Mm. How can I use that to best help Others. Yes, yes. Also cementing yourself in a good place too because you can't yeah. just be this person yeah, that um, yeah. takes on others and then falls in a heap yeah. because you've burdened yourself. Yeah. And
0: how can I promote and enable others to, to do what they are called to do yeah. and what they are best able to do? You know, we the whole bit of information of the world isn't invested in one mind, you know, in one person. There are lots of people out there and it's a massive big collective. So if we can... Uh, Encourage the the thinkers to think and the doers to do and the the ponderers to ponder. You know, I think that's uh, really really important. Uh,
1: the idea of roles, the idea of yeah,
0: yeah, your place in the yeah. in the universe, and uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Mm. You mentioned meditation before, and that's something I've been exploring a lot of. I was raised Catholic. I sort of rejected religion as a late teen, early early twenties. And then moved thinking that oh I've I've made sense of the world and and then found that the deficiencies that I had were spiritual. Mm. Nice. Not necessarily a God or a religion as such, but a spiritual connection, that idea of connecting to things with with awe, with gratitude. Yes. And that was missing. And that materialism, I was never one to be materialistic for consumer goods, but I was materialistic to say that humans control everything and everything is a material that we can count with the chemical elements or we can define purely by science Mm. but so many people are finding that that is not enough and some turn to interesting and questionable methods to try and find spirituality and others turn to to looking and and just trying to find where Mm. they fit Mm. and what Mm. fits i've questioned a lot of people's choice on maybe a uh, really investing completely and fully into an Eastern ph- philosophy that is fantastic in practice but then the, the little uh, I guess the, the real supernatural elements that I struggle with and I used to say, well, you've got to write that off because of those small element of the supernatural that I couldn't quite understand or grasp but now i've discovered that there are so many great things in all areas but mm. were you talking about the way that you found god and then also lived with god and still do and practice prayer and and i like and it really helps me understand it in a way that you said that the ritual or the is really not overly important it's it's living in a way that is in balance with nature and with people yes and yes. and actually realizing that you are a a very important and powerful person but you're also in- insignificant in the scheme of things mm, because mm. of this world and universe yeah, that we live yeah, in yeah. so prayer meditation retreat how does this, in a christian or catholic tradition how does it actually end up looking like because i sit down for either a guided meditation for 10 minutes a day or do a 20 minute mm. sort of sit down and reflect and i try to silence my mind in a way and i've realized it's not about trying to silence your mind it's recognizing that your mind isn't silent is a much better way to approach it and that's that brings you a bit of liberty and freedom and Mm. and Mm. understanding of your brain so meditation and and prayer you did talk about how it uh, looked like but when you talk about a retreat a silent retreat what does that look like Mm. how does that end up manifesting yeah
0: I think the whole spiritual journey, Matt, again, it's the journey bit. It's like mm. the Exodus thing. You're on the on the journey, you know. And there have been different times in my life where, uh, like, I used to journal a lot at one particular time. I used to uh, write down dreams and, and work with dreams a lot at one stage. Uh, there was a time, I guess, that ritual and practice was important for me and, and helpful. I think in my journey I've come to a point where I see that in most of most religions that I'm aware of, the, the rituals and the practices are pretty much pointless and are driven by uh, power and control. I think clericalism, in the Catholic Church anyway, is really destructive uh, and really alienating uh, for people. And so what's become important for me is looking at the the story of of Jesus and who he was and and how he was. What's really been helpful is, is just a little bit of anthropology and understanding the history and culture of his time and seeing why he did what he did, the way he did it and the time that he did it. Fundamentalism has absolutely destroyed a lot of people's I don't know, faith, but uh, practice of religion, I suppose, uh, instead of saying, okay, well, Jesus said and did that. That was 2,000 years ago. So don't sort of say that what he said and did 2,000 years ago got to apply right here, right right today. Uh, so we've got to grow up a bit, I think, and use our intellect and use our mind and, and use uh, the study that's available to us through with the archaeology or anthropology or good strip scripture scholar scripture study or whatever so when it comes to to meditation and i get to that for me it's oftentimes uh just being aware of a particular story of in the life of jesus the experience of jesus and uh trying to get into his his experience of that and the experience of the other people who were in that particular story in that particular place and then move that into my particular circumstances and time here here and now but but in a way that I just sit with the the story of the experience and um, just be really still and as quiet as I can and maybe I'm sitting down doing that maybe I'm walking and doing that and just allow whatever insight or awareness comes. And if there isn't any, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Because probably two days later, something will happen So, oh, that's it. Yeah. There's that, that awareness. So it's, it's, it's creating an open space in your mind and heart and soul, I think, for life to happen and life to grow. So it's, it's that process. It's not like, oh, I've got to do this right here, right now. It's a, it's allowing the, the movement of, of the spirit that's within each of us to uh, make itself known to us, I think. I think that's kind of what how meditation is. Uh, I can sit there and thankfully generally sort of have my mind be sort of fairly empty. It requires a, a discipline to do that, mm-hmm. of course, and then after a period of, of time, it might have been, oftentimes it's been my experience if I've been on a retreat that I think that I've been sitting down for 10 minutes being really quiet and when I look at my watch it's been 50 minutes or 40 minutes, you know. Yeah. So it's just that kind of emptiness but then say, well, what did all that mean? And And invariably there's some sort of message or meaning or understanding or it might be just, gee, that was pretty good. It was just a a nice sort of restful time. And that's really important that we we have those sorts or it's important for me that I have those sorts of times. So that's generally how uh, it is for me. And and sometimes it might be a piece of someone else's poetry or uh, an image or just being attentive to nature or being in nature that's enough to just help me just feel my best self. I suppose, or be my best self yep. in that. And pretty much always when I come away from a period of meditation or, or quiet, I know I'm more, more available to whatever presents itself physically, spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually. Just can get my head around things and do things. If I don't have that regular, regular time, I can get really weary and tired and bit irritated by some of the things that that might go on and then i realize oh, that's because i haven't had that kind of stillness and that quietness and that restfulness
1: that ability to reflect to process yes is missing mm. we are mm. we're having so much more come at us and way less time to process it yes and that's yes. the issue yeah, isn't yeah, it yeah, yeah. so it's allowing that time mm. Mm. i think that you're someone that yeah you mentioned living your best self and and that's an amazing thing for someone to be doing and so many people strive for that. But if someone wanted to listen to this and they can find out what mean, it means to them to live their best self and, and we've sort of unpacked ways to mm, mm. to look into that, but how can someone help you and this community, this community that a lot of these people are living their best self Yes, and yes. that best self might not be aligned to my values or your values yeah. or someone else's, yeah. but they're doing the best that they can do yep. for the people yep. around them and they're making beautiful decisions mm. and sacrifices mm. and mm. being generous where and when they can and maybe that processing time just isn't there um. often for them so i know that i you know put my hand up and said i'm going to do more volunteering here and and i did it once and and have been around you know with st johns and been able yeah, to yeah. contribute a little bit with a in a couple of little ways but i'd love to do to do more how can how can I and and many others do more for the great work you're doing here and for this community?
0: Yeah. I think to the the first uh, move is just to inquire, to say, hey, I'm, and a uh, mum just called the other day and asking uh, just that. And so then we can have a conversation about, well, what are your interests, your skills, your abilities, your 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 talents,, uh, et cetera. And how might they match up with what we see as some of the needs here? Or let's explore <clears throat> some of the needs here a bit more, given that you've got, oh, you've got that ability, that talent, that experience. Wonder how that might match up with something something here. So it's really, I think, for people just to, uh, if they are interested, and I think it's probably a big step for people, actually. Oh, I'm all right. I've been living in this place for for years you know yeah. it's sort of home for me but for someone from the outside to come into a, a community that's uh looks a bit scruffy and looks a bit untidy and looks a bit unkempt and old houses and people walking around with you know talking to themselves and you know looking a bit rough around the edges it could be a bit threatening and a bit oh gee this is a bit harsh but uh to make that first move to say to someone who is like ourselves who are living and working here, look, uh, I wouldn't mind being a part of that. Uh, let's have a bit of a chat about how, what, what might that look like, you know. Mm. And it's
1: all well and good for me to say put a number up, donate, but that's a one-off a lot of the time and it's a bit of money. Oh, that's yeah. an influx. And it's maybe not even giving you your – it's not filling your heart over time necessarily mm-hmm. by being able to say – what can I do? Yeah. I've got this talent. I've got this…
0: It's your presence yeah. which is really important. That's what's so important really to, to the people yeah, to yeah, see that and to be yeah. a part
1: of that and also yeah. for you to enter and and give. You don't have to quit your job tomorrow and, and no, no, join no. join uh, the brotherhood. You don't have to go off and, and go to Africa to, to spend two years. You can simply say with some time that I've got, I'm going to make a little bit of time even with my family or mm, my loved mm, ones or friends mm, to to come down and yes, say, yes, you yes, know, yes. I'm really good with my hands, I can fix someone's car or I can is there a bike shed. Yeah, I, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah, do yeah. something like that. Or yep. I may be able to read to mm. to kids mm. or whatever it might yeah, be yeah. that someone could. And operate. I
0: think it's really important for people who wherever they are who who have got this heart for doing something for us. So, well in my community here, where can can do it. Well it could be okay, there's a there's a, a nursing home in our area or there's a a facility here for people who are retired, they live there. I wonder if they need some volunteers. I wonder if there might be someone who might like to just uh, have someone who sits with them and has a cup of coffee with them every now and then and a bit of a chat, you know. I think people love telling their story and hearing stories told, you know, so to do that. So it, it, not necessarily always going somewhere else to do it. Mm. Uh, it's where you are in your local place. Uh, sure, it's fantastic uh, if people can go to other other places where there might be some more extreme examples of disadvantage to, and help out. But, uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's great to look at where where you are primarily and then go from there. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. I've had many,
1: and the name of this podcast is Moments of Clarity, I've had many moments that I'm going to reflect on and process. But is there something that... Is it something that you've learnt recently or from this conversation or, or just generally that was a moment of clarity or has been a moment of clarity for you?
0: I think, uh, well, there are a couple of things. One is uh, last year I, um, or, or the, the years before this, I would go and do a 200-kilometre walk in uh, western Victoria and, and eastern South Australia. It's called the uh, Aussie Camino walking up into Panola where Mary McKillop was, so it's following her, her trail and way. And I love doing that and I also had a chance to do a a fairly long a long walk in the UK. And then last year I found out that I was battling to walk 200 metres. Uh, there was something going on and I ended up being hospitalised and, and found out that I have a condition that's... Uh, bit disabling and is being I thought going to be fixed up by medication but I've since found out that it's only going to be uh, maintained with medication and so that kind of struggle and that you know having to get my head around uh, a whole new way of being it was almost like you know, I'd become a bit of a different sort of personality so that that has brought a, a big change and one of the things that's done is make me much more aware, I think, or a bit sensitive to the vulnerabilities of other people around the place. Uh, I would have preferred to not have it that way, but, but that that done. And then while that was happening, it was while we were doing some thinking about this um, women's legal literacy and a lawyer uh, called me from the Women's Legal Service and uh, spoke to me about that. And uh, just that awareness of that importance of empowering, particularly our women and and our grandmothers and 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 then through that our children. I think there've been a couple of uh, moments that sort of just happened together in a way that uh, uh, have been pretty, uh, yeah, pretty influential things for me. When I've been in some other places like a school or somewhere, I've been there five, six, whatever years. After a while, thinking, oh, same old, same old, you know. You can get a bit not bored with it, but uh, a bit uh, bit sameish. Now I've been here for twenty one years or whatever, and it's almost like it's always changing. Mm. Nothing's the same, you know. So there's always new things happening. But I think this is the new thing that's happening for me the 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 sort of new physical capacity, I suppose. And but also going with that, well, okay, we're out, not out there doing things, but I've got a mind and and a heart, and got some lots of really good connections with people. How can we do something a bit different? So that's kind of probably where it's been for me. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much. I've absolutely good appreciated your time and this conversation. So yeah. Unless did you have anything else that you'd like no, to share okay, or say, so?
0: put a big full stop there. Absolute full say, stop.
1: Okay. So no, I honestly yeah. thank you so much, and I'll put um, a link to the ways that people can get into contact with you and your community um, in the show notes. So great. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you'd like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, please send an email to Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for
0: joining me on Moments of Clarity.